Hello everyone, I'm Michael Watson, publisher for History at Cambridge University Press, and I'm here talking to Robert Saunders, senior lecturer for modern British history at Queen Mary University of London and the author of Yes to Europe, the 1975 referendum and 70s Britain. The book has been greeted with considerable acclaim, with um, Andrew Marr, for instance, describing it as a jaw-dislocating page-turner and noting, if you care about contemporary politics, you really need to read it. The parallel between 1975 and 2016 is something which reviewers have particularly picked up on. Uh, Nick Comfort in the Daily Telegraph noted that when you read how that first battle over whether we should stay in Europe was fought, it becomes a little easier to fathom what went wrong or right in 2016 and why. 1975, in effect, gave us a model for how to solve the European problem. And so I thought we'd start our discussion with why it was that Britain decided to turn to a referendum as a device to solve a seemingly intractable problem. Over to you, Robert. So I think there's a political reason and there's a principled reason for holding a referendum. The political case was that Labour had come to power in 1974 under Harold Wilson, and it was a party that was fundamentally divided on the European question. It had Euro enthusiasts in the cabinet, like Roy Jenkins, and also people like Tony Benn, whose life's work was to get Britain out of the European community. So the party was essentially presented with this fizzing bomb of an issue on the cabinet table. And the easiest way to hold the cabinet together was simply to pass it over to the electorates and to let them make the decision in place of the party. But it was also a principled case, which was that this was a fundamental change in the way that Britain was governed. It was a fundamental change in the way that Britain did its trade. And that there had always been a certain question mark over its legitimacy. So Britain had joined in 1973, but it hadn't had a referendum on entry. It hadn't really been an issue at a general election. And Ted Heath had said in 1970 that Britain would only join with the full hearted consent of Parliament and people. So there was also a democratic case for saying that a change on this scale needed the endorsement of the public. And so and what, what was the was, was there a, a popular debate? So beyond sort of political circles and divisions in the Labour Department, was, were, were, was there a kind of popular debate about, around Britain in Europe? Yes, there really was. And actually, one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book was that I wanted to write a book about public opinion and Europe, a book that wasn't just about summits and treaty changes and relations between governments. And one of the things that I think is really fascinating about 1975 is that it took the European question out of Westminster and out of the party leaderships and threw it open to the country. So you had supermarkets giving out carrier bags saying yes to Europe. You had bishops preaching sermons in the churches, talking about the religious case for membership. You had trade unions, women's organizations, farmers groups, charitable organizations, all debating the biggest issue, arguably, of British post-war politics. Yeah, I mean, I thought one of the particularly interesting um, aspects of the book was that the sort of popular culture side, you know, that you did have sporting figures, um, say, you know, sort of coming out. You know, I thought it was, um, it was very difficult to see the likes of Harry Kane, you know, mobilising <laughs> for, um, you know, sort of the Remain case. So I wondered, yeah, so why, why it was, you know, why was that a kind of very different, you know, slightly more innocent Britain at that time? I think you could argue it was a cleverer politics. But of course, one of the things that happened in 2016 was a, a reaction against elites and against experts. Mm -hmm. And the 70s was also a very anti-elite, anti anti-establishment decade. So the Remain campaign 
realized that it didn't want politicians on its posters, it didn't want big business figures. It wanted people that the public could relate to. And sports stars were particularly useful because these were people who had competed for Britain, they were patriotic heroes, they had competed in Europe and won. So they're both relatable and they get across that message that Britain could engage in Europe, it could compete with its European partners and it could win for Britain. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so uh, talking about people that um, ordinary people could relate to and mobilising those, yeah, so obviously one of the features of the um, 2016 referendum was figures like Farage or Boris Johnson. So in terms of the kind of personalities involved in 1975, how did that sort of fall in terms of the two sides? So most of the heavyweight figures of mainstream politics back to the Remain campaign. So if you look at some of the press conferences from the period, you've got Ted Heath, the former Conservative Prime Minister. You've got Jeremy Thorpe, the Liberal leader. Roy Jenkins, a Labour Home Secretary, sitting along, alongside one another on a platform. You've also got figures like Harold Wilson, Jim Callaghan, quite big names from the acting world, the literary world, all backing staying in. The Leave campaign tended to draw more on what you might see as the radical wings of British politics. Mm -hmm. So people like Tony Benn on the Labour left, or Ian Paisley in Northern Ireland. Yes, or or Enoch Powell, Mm -hmm. um, man who had talked about rivers of blood in the 1960s. So also very big names. These are great platform orators. Mm -hmm. They're people that have you know, inspired followings, but they're also quite polarising figures. Hmm. Um, I mean, looking at Wilson in particular, um, I think in the book you mentioned he was pro-Europe with his head rather than his heart, um, which, you know, perhaps is um, somewhat akin to Cameron. And um, But was was he a, a sort of more, I mean, he, he comes out of the book as a, a more successful politician, you know, clearly he won, but also there was the kind of renegotiation of terms, which was the kind of prelude to the um, referendum, you know, he's, he seems to have kind of managed the process more successfully. I think one of the interesting things about Harold Wilson is how his reputation has improved in the last 10 to 15 years. And I think that's partly because in the wake of the Iraq war, his success in keeping Britain out of the Vietnam war looks a lot more impressive. And in the wake of Cameron losing a referendum on Europe, his achievement in winning one stands in a different light. And I think he did play a really important role. This is someone who never really felt European. He was always quite open about the fact that he was a Commonwealth man. He didn't particularly like travelling to Europe. He didn't have any kind of emotional commitments of the kind that someone like Ted Heath had. But he concluded, perhaps reluctantly, that Britain needed to be in Europe for economic and diplomatic reasons. And that, I think, actually allowed him to speak to the sceptical floating voter who wasn't really going to listen to an ardent pro-European but was willing to be persuaded that this was a reluctant necessity. Mm-hmm. And what about someone like Thatcher? I, I think, um, you know, certainly some people, Thatcher's pictured on the front of the um, book in her famous um, European jumper. And um, obviously some, some people, you know, noting, you know, Thatcher in the 1980s would be quite surprised by, you know, Thatcher as a pro-Europe figure. So, you know, what, what sort of role did she play? And yeah, what, what was her thinking? I was really pleased that we could have that image on the front of the book of Margaret Thatcher in her Yes to Europe jumper holding aloft a torch, because I think it, it is a surprising image for many people. And it was, a, it was a difficult campaign for her because she had just become leader of the opposition a few months earlier. She had replaced Ted Heath, the man who had taken Britain into the European community in the first place. 
And it's not an issue that she was ever particularly comfortable with. And all the way through the campaign, she was overshadowed by her predecessor. You know, he blazed across the campaign trail. It was, he found a kind of charisma and magnetism that he'd never really shown as prime minister, but found in the referendum campaign. But her position, I think, really was that, again, she wasn't an enthusiast for Europe. She didn't have any romantic attachment to the idea of Europe, but she saw it as a sort of defensive organization against the Soviet Union. She saw it as a bulwark for the defense of capitalism at the time when radical socialism was on the rise. And she saw it as a way of securing Britain's food supplies. And part of Margaret Thatcher's persona, of course, was the housewife in British politics, who thinks about things like, where does a housewife buy her food? What are the shops going to be able to stock? And that, again, actually gives her quite an interesting role in that she can talk credibly about issues like food, like prices in the shops in a way that's perhaps harder for Heath or Wilson. Mm-hmm. And so, so, you know, drilling down, if we could, into um, the key issues that drove the campaign. I mean, if we think of 2016, you know, there's an issue like immigration, you know, is, is clearly, you know, right at the centre of um, thinking about our relationship with Europe. So so what, what were the kind of key, key issues that drove the campaign in 1975? So it's a much more wide ranging campaign than in 2016. I think in 2016, we saw a lot of message discipline. The Remain campaign talked about economic risk and almost nothing else. And the Leave campaign talked overwhelmingly about immigration and about sovereignty. Whereas what the Remain campaign in particular did in 75 was to talk to different audiences about different issues. So they talked about the memory of World War II and how you maintain peace. They talked about the Cold War and what this might mean for relations between East and West. They talked about equal pay and sexual discrimination when they were talking particularly to younger women. They talked about the security of employment and jobs to workers. And they also talked about big issues like sovereignty too. So it's an extraordinarily diverse and wide-ranging campaign. That's partly why it was so interesting to write about. Yes, I mean, the role of business is, a, is an interesting one, isn't it? Because of... Um... I mean, we particularly see sort of business fears now post-Brexit of the implications, you know, of a no deal, etc. Um, so it, it seems that um, business, though, in 2016 was much less, you know, un- unwilling to be at the forefront of the campaign in the way that it seemed to be, you know, the, the supermarkets, for instance, in, in um, 1975 in the book, you know, sort of very visibly pro, pro-Europe. Yes, I think in 2016, business was... Firstly, more divided, actually, on on the question, Mm -hmm. but also it was sort of knocked out of the campaign, partly by fear of social media blowback and what had happened to it in Scotland in 2014. Whereas in 1975, business overwhelmingly mobilised behind the Remain campaign. It contributed extraordinary sums of money. The the Remain campaign in 75 spent about £2 million the Leave campaign spent about 133,000. So it's an extraordinary disparity of wealth, and that money really came from business. And I think the reason for that is that one of the themes I try to bring out in the book is the extraordinary sense of economic crisis that surrounds the campaign in the 70s, the sense that the British economy might actually collapse if it makes the wrong decision here. And so for that reason, business does come out, and it does campaign, and it canvasses its workers, it produces material for the press, it funds the central organisation, and it's really at the core of the campaign in a way that it wasn't in 2016. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting, isn't it? It's the, it's, they are very, very different sort of international economic contexts that um, 
it's, it feels in 2016, there was, despite the financial crisis, the memory of financial crisis, there was still this sense of confidence. You know, it was, it was, um, it felt like um, the Leave campaign were very much putting um, a case, you know, of a global Britain. And whereas in 1975, it, it feels like the memory of the Second World War the impact of the Cold War meant that, yeah, perhaps there was a greater sort of culture of fear. Absolutely. I, when I was writing the book, and of course I was writing about one referendum while living through another, it did feel a little bit like looking back into a different world. And I think the economy is perhaps where that's most striking. If we think about the 18 months before the referendum in 75, uh, Britain had gone through the three-day week. There had been a major oil shock. There had been serious discussion of petrol rationing. There have been shortages of, of sugar in the shops. There have been inflation at 25 percent. And there's a really powerful sense that the economy might be approaching the edge of a cliff. I think my favorite illustration of this is a line in Tony Benn's diaries towards the end of 1974, in which he writes the final collapse of capitalism might be only weeks away. Hmm. And this is the Secretary of State for Industry hmm. writing this. And I think that does give the campaign a really radically different flavour to 2016. The crash clearly played an important part in 2016, but there wasn't that same sense that the lights might go out, the trains might stop running, factories might close overnight if Britain voted to leave. And so what about, so those are all very much the arguments on the um, Remain side. Um, so on the Leave side, what, what were the kind of arguments that they tried to mobilise? So I think there's two main wings to the Leave campaign, and that's partly why they find it difficult perhaps to work together. On the one hand, there's a very strong argument mostly made by conservative Leavers, which is about sovereignty and about the idea that Britain would be surrendering control over its laws, over its courts, over its money, that for the first time since the Reformation, a foreign court would have jurisdiction in Britain. And there's a, there's a wonderful scene where Leave campaigners brought a funeral procession to Westminster and they had men in top hats and tails and had a coffin with the words British democracy on the top. Hmm. So that argument's there. On the left, it tended to be an argument about socialism. The idea that what, what the European community really represented was a capitalist club, that this was a common market and it was about writing the market into state constitutions. It was about making it difficult for socialist governments to nationalise industries to intervene in the economy, and that that was an offence both against socialism and against democracy. And you also had, um, I, you mentioned earlier sort of Scotland, and there's obviously the backdrop of devolution. I, I think that's a very, very interesting how different that dynamic was, you know, that you um, you have a, a terrific quote from Alex Salmond, I, I remember in the book, um, and you know it's just it's it's really I, I think that that shows just how far things have changed. Yeah, it's another example of just how it's like looking in a mirror when you compare the two referendums. In everything's backwards. So in 1975, the most pro-European part of the UK was England, whereas Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland were all more sceptical. And the great fear that haunted the minds of unionists was that England would vote to stay in, whereas Scotland voted to leave. So we've got an exact reversal of what happened in 2016. 
And I think that's sort of evident that that geography of remain and leave. Yes, yeah, so, I mean just at the, at the kind of regional, the the map of the UK in terms of you know not just at the country level, but at the kind of regional level is very different, isn't it? It really is. If you look at 2016, I think perhaps four of the five highest leave votes were in Lincolnshire and Essex. Well, in 1975, Lincolnshire and Essex vote by more than 70% to remain. And what about um, an area like, you know, sort of think of sort of Cornwall, you know, as being, um, you know, an area with a, a strong, a strong leave vote or the northeast, say? Yes, well, in general, the south of England was the most enthusiastically pro-European part of the country. Generally speaking, the further north you go, and particularly once you go into Scotland, uh, the more the enthusiasm diminishes. And something we haven't talked about um, yet is the media. Um, you know, obviously we have, um, you know, readers now will think of the position of a, a paper like the Daily Mail, um, but... Um, it seemed it feels like that dynamic was very different in 1975 with lots of the major papers backing remain it's incredible there are only two major national papers that back leave in 75 and that's the morning star which is a communist paper and the spectator which had a much smaller readership than it does today whereas papers like the daily mail the daily express the sun the daily telegraph they all back remain and i think that partly goes back to that issue we discussed earlier about the the idea that Europe exists to constrain socialism, that the real danger here is that we leave and then we have a, a radical left-wing government under Tony Benn and Michael Foote. So by and large, the right-wing press rallies behind membership as a defence against radical socialism. Given given all we've talked about, I, I guess it's, it, it feels unsurprising that um, Remain came out on top. But was the kind of scale of the victory, was that largely as expected or, you know, more than expected? I think it was at the top end of what Remain has hoped for. It's interesting, if you look at opinion polls at the start of 1975, they show very high levels of support for leaving. So there's a big swing in public opinion over the course of the campaign. What the Remain campaign knew privately, though, was that if you asked the public a second question, if you said, how would you vote if we renegotiated the terms and then recommended a vote to stay. That produced a very similar result to what actually happened in the summer. But of course, Britain had never had a referendum before. And in that sense, this was a leap in the dark. No one really knew how the public would would respond when they got into the privacy of the polling booth. Hmm. And so, so Wilson declared the European question resolved after the election. But your book makes clear that there was sort of almost immediately there's a kind of mobilisation on uh, on the leave side that we've lost the battle, but the the war continues. Absolutely. Enoch Powell was always absolutely adamant that the only question was when would Britain leave the European community? The only vote that could settle this question was a vote to leave. So I think this is really important in terms of the longer history of Britain in Europe. Immediately after the results, the Leave campaign starts to mobilise again. It realises that it's cut itself adrift from public opinion and it's facing a long war to try and turn that around. And it works through that task over the next 20 years. Whereas the Remain campaign tended to think, right, that's it, the issue is now settled. They disband Britain in Europe, the organisation that won the campaign. And there's a over the next 20 years, there are very few voices in British politics actually making the case for why Britain should be a member. So there's, there's, a, there's a sense that a pro-Europe 
sort of case or voice has been kind of absent, too absent from British politics, and has been taken for granted, perhaps? Yeah, absolutely. They feel that the issue is closed. They want to talk about other things. They're not interested in reopening this. And what about um, views from Europe then? So, you know, what's, what did other European leaders, you know, obviously you, you think of the French, for instance, have been very ambiguous and, you know, actually trying to block um, British membership in the first instance. Um, so what, what, were their attitude, what was their attitude kind of looking on from the outside? I think there was a certain attitude of bemusement and a, a sense that Britain had only just joined. But there was also a recognition that fairly early on, they realised that Wilson and Callaghan wanted to get a deal that they could recommend to the public. They were trying to find a way to keep Britain inside the European community. And so because of that, there was quite a lot of goodwill and a willingness to help. There's also quite an interesting shift in the kinds of people that are running the other major European countries. We get figures like Helmut Schmidt in France, uh, Valérie Giscard d'Estaing, sorry, uh, Helmut Schmidt in Germany and Valérie Giscard d'Estaing in France, who are more open to a kind of intergovernmental, looser kind of Europe that places power with national governments rather than, say, with the Commission. So in some ways, the Labour government was pushing against a door that was willing to swing. So in terms of the... So beyond... um, Figures like power. So, what about in the in the general elections that followed? Um, was what did Europe remain, you know, a sort of a point of reference in the, in those election campaigns? It does. It's not a massive issue in 1979, but if we fast forward to 1983, there we have a Labour government that puts withdrawal from the European Community in its manifesto, and this time without a referendum. So, the Labour Party, in some ways, doubles down um, on its opposition to membership over the next decade. And then the Kinnock era is largely about trying to ease the Labour Party back from that situation. Yes, because one of the interesting things that, yeah, it's, it's still very hard to make those kind of strict divides on party lines, isn't it? That you still, the, the divisions that we still see today, you know, within the um, Conservative and Labour parties, yeah, they, they still seem very much there. You know, so were they there sort of after, after 75 as well? Yes, it's never been an issue that the party system has been able to contain or to cope with particularly well, which is why we have these two referendums in the first place. And I think you really can't tell the history of British party politics since the 1970s without putting Europe right at the core. This is an issue that splits the Labour Party in the 1970s and 80s. It splits the Conservative Party in the 90s. It creates the two most important new parties of the modern era, the SDP in the 80s and and UKIP from the 90s onwards. It's clearly redrawing our politics at the moment. So it's something that the party system has never been able to cope with. So when we fast forward to the decision to hold a second referendum, so to what extent were people explicitly um, referencing looking back at 1975 at that moment? I think Cameron certainly believed that he could repeat the project of Harold Wilson, that he could take that formula of being a sceptical European who renegotiates the terms of membership and then wins a referendum. I don't think that there was very much attention to the detail of how that referendum was won. And certainly when I talked to people who had been prominent in the Remain campaign in the 70s, none none of them had been consulted by Downing Streets or by the Remain campaign in 2016. So I think there was a sense that they were going to try to repeat the exercise, but they didn't really know how to do it. 
Yes, and I, I think um, from from our discussions, um, what what's very striking is the um, breadth of approach. You know, the as, as you as you mentioned earlier, the tailoring of different messages to different audiences, and I, I one would think that would have been the the thing that they ought to have looked back on, rather than perhaps you know thinking about you know fighting Scottish independence. You know, very much a kind of project fear approach. Exactly. It's very interesting. Uh, Craig Oliver, who was David Cameron's director of communications, published his diaries of the 2016 campaign recently. And I think one of the things that you see in that book is the collapse of a certain model of how politics works. But at the start of the book, there's a very clear sense in Downing Street that they know how to win elections and referendums. They've done it in Scotland, as they've done it in 2015, and that that is by focusing almost exclusively on economic risk. And if you do that, people ultimately will not vote to make themselves poorer. And over the course of the campaign, the opinion polls keep moving towards leave. And they keep putting another economic expert on the radio to try to put the frighteners on. And the polls keep moving. And in that sense, I think they probably drew the wrong conclusions from the Scottish referendum. And they, they could profitably have learned from how the Remain campaign operated 40 years earlier. Yes, I think they could profitably have um, um, learned from reading your book, clearly. So, <laughs> yes. Well, well, thank you very much, Robert. Um, I'm sure anyone listening to this will be very keen to read the book and um, we'll look forward to the paperback, which will be coming um, out early next year as well. Um, and we'll watch with keen interest as well to see how Brexit unfolds in the coming months. Okay. Well, certainly will. It's yes. been a pleasure talking to you. Thank okay. you. Thanks very much, Robert.